Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome everyone to Corner Table Talk, where we engage in conversations with our guests on subjects around food plus drink plus culture. As always, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com with your questions and comments. So it's summertime, and after the year and a half that we've had, we could all use a treat for the soul, and I think today delivers just that. You know, when I was a kid, we would all listen for the ring, the chimes of the good humor man, and then run to jump in line for our favorite, whatever the selection might be at his truck. I'm not sure if my love of ice cream started there or maybe the soft serve twists of chocolate and vanilla at Nancy's Snack Bar by the boat dock in Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard before or after the Flying Horses. Of course, there was that first standalone Haagen-Dazs shop in our neighborhood on 74th and Columbus on Manhattan's Upper West Side. I could go on. Of course, I am a lover of ice cream. So when I heard what my next guest was up to, she seemed like the perfect summertime person to have on the show. My guest today, Lokalani Alabanza, is the creator of Saturated, her own brand of plant-based, hemp-derived CBD ice cream. Bet that's a new one for most of you. Lokalani is based in Nashville. She attended the New England Culinary Institute and gained her culinary experience working in Denmark as a private chef, as well as Japan. She relocated to Los Angeles and worked with the renowned pastry chef, Elizabeth Belkine. Loki's passion for pastry cooking was ignited there. She also worked with Elizabeth at the James Beard award-winning LA institution, Campanile. She was exposed to the well-respected Dahlia Navarez and Nancy Soberton, the legend. Nancy, for those of you who don't know, started in Wolfgang Puck's original Spago and was the pastry chef there. She and her husband, Mark Peel, who was, a, on a side note, very sadly, suddenly uh, passed away this year at, uh, at 66. So the food world was shocked, and we send our condolences out to, uh, to Mark's family. But on that note, both Mark and Nancy together opened Campanile in 1989. It happened to be the year I moved to uh, Los Angeles. And Pulitzer Prize food writer Jonathan Gold said of Campanile, quote, it is hard to overstate Campanile's contribution to American cooking, end quote. That's pretty high praise from Jonathan. So we will dig in to Lokalani's experience there. Her journey continued from L.A. to Nashville, where she became the culinary director for Hattie Jane's Creamery. Last year, she launched Saturated, which is not a brick and mortar. And we will discuss her decision to do it um, virtually the way she has created her business. I discovered Lokalani from a piece you wrote in Oxford American Spring Food Issue titled Monumental Flavor. Lokalani, it's so nice to meet you and welcome to Corner Table Talk. Hello, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Great to have you. So we kick things off um, with our short order questions. So I'll just shoot a few at you, get your quick response, and then we will dive into our conversation. So first up, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to? Okay, I've gone down this weird R&B <laughs> path <laughs> lately. So uh, Biggie's One More Chance has been playing uh, some D'Angelo. Uh, I think I was listening to, I don't even know what I was listening to yesterday. I've just gone down this, like nostalgic summertime uh 2099 whatever era so. is it d'angelo's brown sugar that oh my that gosh one yes. or, yeah brown yeah. sugar uh the album and then i think like destiny's child is like 
brought up. Keisha Cole's been in there. Like it's just that's been this week though. That's just this okay. week. So things change. <laughs> things change. I hear you. So tell me what if you can narrow it down. What is what's your favorite thing about living in Nashville? You know, I have to say for me now at this point in my life, it has been my community, my tribe that I have built here in the last six years, and that has made the city so special for me. So that's something that I hold very dearly. That's cool. Did yeah. you, having lived in LA, did you find that it was easier to create that kind of tribe, as you call it, in, in Nashville or not much different, just a new new place? I think it was easier in LA because, <laughs> you know, in LA, I was in the, in like in the business, in the food industry so mm. deeply, you know, so I was at several different restaurants at one time. So you just start to make friends and then it becomes your family and you start hanging out sure. more and more. I had a massive tribe in Los Angeles to the point where I think I had three going away parties when I moved to Japan. It was so heartbreaking. People were like, you are really moving. You're leaving LA. And I was like, I'm leaving LA. <laughs> like, and not like to go to Austin, but to Japan. Yeah, to go to Japan of all places. I know. Yeah. I remember um, our general manager at Besso restaurant, he said to my mom, he goes, she's really leaving. And my mom said, yep, that's Loki. <laughs> <laughs> she's got it when she's got an idea it's it's happening she's determined yeah. it's done so yeah. yes but isn't that great you know i i've noticed that too in the places that i've had i mean you definitely form some lasting bonds and friendships with the people that you work with right a hundred percent you know i turned 40 this past spring and i was sad because you know i had this epic party you know that i wanted of course COVID had different plans for everybody and but what happened was there are about 60 people on the Zoom call, and they were from each part of my life. So starting, let's say, in Los Angeles, and then when I moved to Japan, and then when I moved to Las Vegas, and from here. And so that sort of showed me the type of connection that I've had over the course of, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Really interesting. And for those of you who, you know, you won't be able to see Lokalani, and I, and I can, there must be some age-defying uh, ingredient that she puts in her ice cream because she does not look 40. She looks about 20. So, uh, but uh, she won't reveal that, I'm sure. No, so we'll, thank you. We'll I appreciate on. that. <laughs> <laughs> must be something in that CBD. So um, tell me, Lokalani, you're a traveler. Where are you looking forward to, uh, to visiting? I definitely want to go to Mexico City. It's a place I was going to go before the pandemic hit, but I really, really want to go explore Mexico City and Oaxaca. Those are the two places that I'm ready to go to and possibly Colombia because they have a cacao plantation there that I've been wanting to go to for, oh my gosh, I think a decade because I use this chocolate card called Cordillera, which I love so much. Um, it's becoming harder to find, but I would love to have, you know, someone walk me through the plant, the cacao plantation, you know, taste the cacao bean. Like, so it would just be an amazing experience for me as a pastry chef slash ice cream maker. Yeah, and slash who knows what next. So yes. yeah, that <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds great. Um, so it's a night out in Nashville. Where are you dining and what are you having? So one of my favorites is City House restaurant. Uh Tandy is the owner, and then Rebecca Tertian is the amazing pastry chef there, who's a dear friend of mine. It's just it's magic. I tell everyone that comes to the city, <laughs> you have to go to City House. It is Oh, you have the pizza's good, the desserts are good. The, it doesn't mm. matter what you have; it's gonna be delicious. You're gonna drink good wine. You're gonna have a good time, and it's completely worth your time. 
when you come to Nashville. You know, um, Alice actually mentioned that uh, that restaurant to me when I was asking her about some places in Nashville. And I went online and I looked at their menu. It looks phenomenal. It's the best. And Rebecca and I, we do her cookies. She's known for her cookie plate. Like she has these amazing cookies and you can order them as a dessert. But we started doing, she makes ice cream sandwiches. So last summer and this summer I'll do an ice cream and then she'll put them in her ice cream sandwich. And it's just the best collaboration we possibly could do. Uh, So it's great. It's, it's just it is a must do when you come to Nashville. A must. <laughs> that, that's like worth the visit right there. An ice oh, yeah. cream sandwich, the one that you just described. Okay. So who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party and what flavor ice cream would you make? So I always say my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, Margaret Yarbrough, because she passed when I was 12. And so she never was able to see me become this pastry chef or do these things. And also she would not allow me to be in her kitchen ever as much as I wanted. I was so curious as a kid, but she is, you know, who nourished me and protected me as a child. And so I would love nothing more. And I would definitely, uh, we know that uh, Jim was it Jamoka almond fudge was her favorite ice cream flavor. She only did two. It was like Neapolitan were the ones she bought, which is what I grew up eating. And then Jamoka almond fudge. So somewhere <laughs> in between that, I would have to make a version of those flavors for her to have an experience. Oh, that's so sweet. I'm, I'm sure she's looking down with some pride at you, you know, and what you're doing. Um, tell me your fondest childhood memory around food. It's got to be, you know, it was the holidays. Thanksgiving was always a really big one. It was just looking, when you were a child, everything just seems so much larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the table's bigger, you know, and I was small enough to hide under the table. So I would <laughs> wait till the table was covered in food. And then I would come like crawl out and peek up and just see, I mean, copious amounts of, you know, greens, a turkey, a ham, biscuits. Mm-hmm. I mean, just whatever was on this table is magical. And those are the memories that I think of constantly. I think that's why I love Thanksgiving so much as an adult, more so than any other holiday. I make such an effort to make sure all the things that I had as a child are present at the table. Yeah, that's, you know, it's such a, you're you're right. I mean, you just, you created an image for me. And I think about my mom who I lost a few years ago and how many hours she would put into that meal, you know, and the, the lifting the turkey out of the oven, a 20 some pound bird, you know, would hurt her back and want, she'd want me to rub her shoulder. and And then I came to really, really appreciate just how much work aside the love too, but it was a lot of work that went into making that much food. But boy, what a what a special day, huh? The smells and the tastes and the flavors. Oh yeah. It's so nostalgic. It is, I mean, and see like for you just to describe all that, like it's so specific, you know, and that's what food does. It just food is so powerful. That's what it, it pulls up those memories, which are always really beautiful. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um how you doing and how have you handled the challenges of this past year and how has the summer shaped up for you in Nashville? So I am doing well. I'm very, I have a lot to be grateful for. It's been an interesting, I mean, the last year, I, there's like, I remember some of it, so I talk because <laughs> it was just expanded and, you know, decree, it was just a lot. Uh, but it's, It's like no matter what happens, somebody still wanted to eat ice cream, which is amazing considering everything going on, right? There was a moment where no one was leaving their house. Then there was a moment where people were – the trepidation and people were slowly coming back out. Now it's like, okay, we're all back out. We have another little issue. (laughs) But 
people still show up. I actually had an event last week called, called Porter Flea, which is twice a year here in Nashville. It's this beautiful artisan market. People from all over mm-hmm. the country come. You have to apply. And I did it twice last year. It was virtual. So I didn't get to see people in person. They would just order online. I would fill the orders and then have them delivered. And this time I was actually there, which was, you know, it was a different feeling because you're out, you have a table, you're set up. And what was so great about it were there people would show up and they'd say, I've been following you for so long and I finally get to have your ice cream. Like I've been chasing this unicorn. Like it's just like, wow. I finally found you. Uh, so that was a really great feeling to know that, you know, sometimes you have, you get nervous about what you're putting out in the world and you think, mm-hmm. do people still want this even though time yeah. has passed? But they mm-hmm. do, They're, they've been supportive. So it is summertime. Were they summer. mostly local folks or were you, do, were you getting people from out of town as well? It's local. And I also get a lot of, you know, DMs and a lot of emails about, you know, cause I have a website. So it's like, you can go on the website, mm-hmm. you can send me a message and, you know, I try so hard to get back to you. And it's like, okay, if you want this, we'll make sure you can get it. You know, I just feel like that's the best type of customer service, especially when you're sure. a smaller business. Um, mm-hmm. but also it's a one woman show, you know, just mm-hmm. doing all the things, which is worthwhile. But also I had to learn a lot about the CBD world and that took a lot of months, many weeks and months to figure out there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of hurdles. You have to get around it. And so I kept thinking if I had just made regular ice cream, <laughs> this would have been different, but I'm happy that I made the choice that I made. I've learned a lot mm-hmm. and uh, I have an incredible neighbor across the street. He has taught me so much about mm-hmm. it. You know, he grows, he has farms and they grow their product and actually use their product. Uh, so it's, it was like kismet. It, it just worked out. So, but mm-hmm. no, it's August. It's still the hottest month. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the South. Hot so, and steamy. Yes. yes so yes, yes. curious, did the, did the roadblocks that the pandemic created for so many businesses, did that, did that affect you or were you better suited for it because you weren't brick and mortar? I was better suited for it because I didn't have employees. Mm -hmm. I didn't have brick and mortar. You know, I I, originally out the gate, you know, I had just come from a brick and mortar for four years. I helped build a brick and, you know, build a concept for somebody. And Mm -hmm. I knew within that, that that was something that I didn't want. I knew that, you know, e-commerce is the future, obviously, right? And it really showed that last year, but it's also gut-wrenching what's happened to the food industry in the last year, how many places have shuttered and closed permanently. Like that's heartbreaking. You know, it takes Mm -hmm. so much to go from an idea to an actual standing restaurant that pays people and you create beautiful stuff and moments for people. So Mm -hmm. I just thought, well, if I have this little idea, I make it subscription, Mm -hmm. people order it, let's try it out. You know, so it sort of- See what happens. Yeah, Yeah, and see what happens. It actually- the timing. It was all the timing. Mm-hmm. My dad specifically mm-hmm. said to me when I told him I was permanently laid off, he said to me, okay, well, you better start that business. And I went, what? Well, let, let, let's take a step back there because I wanted, I think that's a really important point, um, obviously pivotal for you. Um, but it's also that, you know, that classic when you know, opportunity and preparation meet, you know, it's when, you know, good things can happen and luck, you know, crosses that line as well. But so you were laid off from the creamery that you helped to build, right? Because yes. of COVID and they, you know, and cutbacks that were unavoidable. And that set you up with, you know, an, an opportunity. And based on the fact that you had accumulated the skills that you had, you know, and as you had, as you just alluded to said, you know, look, Lonnie, this might be that time. So did you, did you embrace that moment? And, or did you have a little bit of a down moment? Damn, I lost my job. But, you know, yeah. or did you bounce right back and say, I'm jumping right into the next thing? I, so I had had this idea for 
a while, like maybe like a couple of years, right? It had been brewing, but it was time for me to go. Like it was just time for me to leave that job. Like it was just ready. It was time. So the universe had, (laughs) the universe was like, if you don't, I'm going to make it happen for you. And that's what happened. I got shoved out of the nest, which is fine. And I realized, oh, I do have wings. I can fly somewhere and wherever I want. And it came, I can't, it was, it was very serendipitous. Like it was, it just, everything just lined up the way that it was supposed to. So yeah, you, when you're somewhere for so long and your handprints are all over it and it's part of what had you grow, you know, it was a good platform to jump off of. You carry those emotions. There's no way I could sit here and say, no, it didn't affect me, you know? So it was like, oh, I got laid off. And I was like, okay, also it's COVID. Also what's next? You know, X, Y, and Z, we're going through all these things. And then I had that moment of, okay, it's okay. You know, and I had so much support immediately. And then when my dad made that comment of now it's time, it was like, okay, this is what you need to do. So then it went to like, get your LLC, get these things ready, get this going, get your, you've already have a name, get someone to make a logo. Oh, you already had that done. You had this business plan, you know, so just start making things happen. And I tell the story all the time, you know, I bought a hundred cups and I had that imposter syndrome, which now I know is just like, utter BS, just like leave it at the door, you know, just say, Hey, I didn't think anyone was going to buy them. I thought it's going to take me a month to push this product. Like who's interested in CBD dairy-free ice cream. My friend came to me. She said, do you have a machine? And I said, yeah, my like one just showed up at the door like a week ago. And she said, we're going to do this event at the CBD cafe. And I said, okay, like I'm not going out a lot. It's co- It's COVID. And she said, it's fine. You can stay outside. I filled 70 cups And I sold out within two hours. I think people that I had not seen for probably two or three years in the city had come out in the middle of a pandemic to support me and the brand. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, like you're doing, you're supposed, you're exactly where you're supposed to be, which I'm a firm believer on. You're exactly where you're supposed to be at the time you're supposed to be at, you know, when things happen. And so it just sort of unfolded. And then after that, it just, I mean, unreal. It's been wild. I mean, dreams have been coming down the pipeline. <laughs> like, it's just... <laughs> well, let's, let's stay here for a moment. I want to dig in a little bit to your, to your background, but before, before we do, you know, you weren't just this idea to do ice cream was just not, let me just do, you know, chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry and put my name on it and make it really good. And hope he, you know, you went CBD dairy free. I mean, it's like you narrowed the, the lane, you know, very specifically Tell tell me about how that you you arrived at that as your as your selected avenue. So at the creamery, I I had to learn. I knew how to make ice cream, but I had to learn the science of it because that's the there's people that love ice cream and there's people that have to know how to make ice cream. Right? Those are two separate things. And so I had to learn the science. I had to learn the machinery. I had to learn how to work commercial. But we were. I was making all these flavors. I mean, I'm at like 350 flavors that I've created. You know, which is wild in the last five years. And I was looking at it and I went, you know what? People that can't have dairy shouldn't just have just coconut. Like that isn't, that's not fair. And so I started, I started pushing myself to make different non-dairy bases and flavors. And I have been doing a lot of research about, you know, CBD, what it does. You know, I had a friend that she unfortunately passed from cancer a few years ago and she talked earnestly about CBD and what it had done for her. And I kept thinking, okay, well, People administer medicine in different forms. So what if it was in the form of ice cream, you know, different things of that nature. And it occurred to me, okay, plant-based is the future. That's where we're going with food. 
and CBD is here and it is the future. This is where we're going. And we've been going this direction for a long time. So I thought, well, then how do you just put them together? But I had to figure out the right CBD to put in the right thing. And that's where I had to learn. So it just made sense. Like it's hard to explain it. Just, it was that method to the madness immediately. It was like, oh, this oh. chemistry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're... It was just like, Loki, just do this thing. So, I mean, the first few batches that I made were not, I mean, I had a a tasting with a few people and it's like, can you feel the effects? How does this taste? All these things. Oh my God, that seems so long ago. (laughs) And it was a lot of tinkering, but I figured the base out. So when I made Mm -hmm. decisions about the base and how I was going to make the base, so I'm not replacing milk, right? Milk is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So is dairy. Mm -hmm. I don't think it can be replicated in the way that we want it to be because that's what happens. You tell people to taste something, but it's going to have a reminiscent of something else. And that's what you want. You just want ice cream to have a good mouthfeel, to be cold, to be delicious, to have that flavor, to just taste good. And mm-hmm. so those were the things that I wanted to work really hard on, on my flavors, but I also wanted them to be flavors that you didn't think we could possibly make. And that's sort of where the challenge came and I fully accepted it. And mm-hmm. that's how I got to narrow it down to plant-based and CBD. So without, you know, geeking out too much here on the, on CBD specifically, but you know, I I spent a little time in LA. We invested in in a company that was, um, you know, one of the startup uh, uh, legalized marijuana companies. So I spent some time looking at that industry and got interested in CBD. But from your standpoint, <clears throat> what was the what was the, um, the the contributing factor to deciding to put CBD uh, in in your ice cream? I wanted it to be. I wanted to bring, so I, like I tell everybody, I'm not here to cure anything. I'm just here to bring mm-hmm. joy. <laughs> That's it. I wanted it to be just something that you, that I could administer just, it's not even peace or calm. It's just something that gets you, you know, when I look at the demographic, 18 to 30 is about, they want it for, you know, anxiety and stress. Mm-hmm. Anyone 30 and over is like, pain management. I just want pain Mm -hmm. management. So when I thought about those two things, I thought if I can give you this product and it tastes good and you don't know that the CBD is in it, but you want to know that that back pain was, you know, subsided or that maybe you were feeling a little anxious or it's nighttime and you just want to sleep better. Well, then why can't I give that to you? Right. right. So why can't I change this narrative instead of, you know, you have to have it at breakfast. You have to have it at lunch. You have to have a dinner. You can have it whenever you want because it affects everyone differently, right? So right. that's sort of what mm-hmm. made the most sense to me when I started mm-hmm. thinking about, well, why CBD? Because like I tell everybody, you can have the product that I make you with or without, and you're not going to know the taste difference. It's just mm-hmm. going to be the after effect. If there is mm-hmm. even one for you, some people aren't as affected as much, some are. So also, I think the lack of knowledge around CBD is massive, and it's mm-hmm. still getting people to know about how dynamic that it is. I mean, that plant has got so many extraordinary properties and it's just getting people to know the value of it instead of pertaining it as a drug. And then, so there's so many other, that's a whole other conversation, but uh, yeah. So you're kind of disguising health benefits in ice cream. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Without saying that, because unfortunately there's been so many people that have taken advantage of that and and make claims that are, yes. And so again, so the end of the day, I'm like, nope. I, we were just right. making ice cream. So, right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, n- I never, ever thought I would use a, a, 
a Mary Poppins reference, but it sounds like just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. <laughs> Even totally though we're is. not saying it's medicinal, but it, let's just say it has some healing potential. Yes. All right, so let's let's uh, dig back here a little bit. Tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, and what initially got you interested in the culinary industry. So I was born in the Bay Area uh, in Redwood City, California. I was raised in East Palo Alto. And then, so I'm West Coast California kid, true and true. Very proud of being a Californian. <laughs> uh, I was went to school. We lived in like Santa Maria. I went to elementary school there. And then we moved to Southern Oregon. So I went to middle school and high school in Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. And then when I graduated, I went, my parents bought me a Eurorail pass. And so I was gone for, I think, six or eight weeks you know, back in like late 99, like 99, 2000, where your parents were just like, mm -hmm. bye, see you in two mm -hmm. months. Uh, I traveled all over Europe. And at that point, I wanted to be an actress. I had my parents fully convinced I was going to be an actress. And so I knew I loved cooking because I would run home and watch Yan Can Cook, you know, the Frugal Gourmet, Julia Childs, Great Chefs of the World. Like I was obsessed. And the scene when Mr. Cooks in the Color Purple and then, you know, Celie comes down and actually cooks the right breakfast for, you know, Shug Avery. Like that's a whole, that was a big deal. And so I said, I think I'm going to go to culinary school. My parents are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. My dad's like, that's a fish out of water. Wow. <laughs> he just did not understand it. Mm -hmm. So I go to Europe. My first job in a restaurant ever in my life was in Svenborg, Denmark at a place called Svenshus, number 13. And it was a beautiful experience. I came home. My mom had a friend. She was a, a history major and art historian, and she mm -hmm. spoke Italian and she gave, she did Italian cooking classes. So I would help her and eventually she opened a restaurant. I met her chef and he's like, look, you should go to culinary school. And he, I named off all the ones. He's like, no, you need to go to Neki because they have the smallest classes. It's more intense. You'll learn more. And I thought I've never been to Vermont before my life. And this is before like the internet is like the internet where I still had to print an application, hand write it out, put it not like today. Yeah. And I got in and it was the first time I had been on the East coast. It was the mm -hmm. worst winter they had had in like a hundred years. Course. I was yeah. ill-equipped with clothing. I did not have the right, right boots or shoes. None of that. Um, and I went to culinary school and it would really change basically the rest of my life. And so from culinary school, I wanted to be a chef. There were not a lot of women of color at the time. There were not a lot of females in the kitchen during that era. So and let so, me pause there for a second. So when you when you saw that, did you say, hmm, this is Elaine that's interesting because I don't see many that look like me? Or were you intimidated that you didn't see many that look like you? No, I was I thought I have to do this because no one looks like me. I mean, mm -hmm. even on TV, I thought, no, I wanted a food show so badly. Like it was my focus was like, I want to be on TV for food because there is no one that I see that looks like me on TV, you know? Mm -hmm. And that to me was always sort of that fuel. And it was still like that. Even in the kitchen, there were still not a lot of women when I was coming up. There were still not a lot of people of color when I was coming up. Like it just mm -hmm. did not exist. I did not see black women. And mm -hmm. Uh, or black men. And so I get this job or I get to school and I do my internships. And at that point I realized, okay, well, I only took a month or two of my classes of pastry. So I knew a little bit of pastry, but it was more on the savory end of it. So I ended up moving to LA. My, I did my internships and then in Portland, Oregon, and then one in San Francisco. And I could have stayed in San Francisco at that job, but my cousin was like, we're going to LA, we're going to LA. 
oh my gosh, or like early 2000s, <laughs> mid 2000s LA. Um, and so I get there and my aunt owned this incredible catering company, but she said, hey, I can get you a job XYZ. So I had, I remember going to Spago, seeing Wolfgang Puck, looking for Sherry Yard. And she happened to be off that day. And he said, she's not here today. And I said, okay, I'll just come back. And then we went to the friends and family uh, opening for Grace Restaurant, which is Neil and Amy Fraser. Neil Fraser, sure. Who are yeah. mm-hmm. like family to me. I've known them for mm-hmm. so long. And Neil said, I don't have any openings in the kitchen, but there's one opening in pastry with my pastry chef, Elizabeth Belkin. And I said, okay. And so he goes, come on Monday. And I came on Monday and that would be boom. Wow. That would set the course wow. for the rest of my life was that moment. And so Elizabeth had just come from Campanile mm-hmm. and I got a job there at the time. So I was doing double kitchen work and then I got a part-time job at J Crew. So I had three jobs. <laughs> and I you were dressing out. well. Yes. I had a retail up. and I had food. Yeah. And so that was good J Crew too back at that time. Um, yeah. So that was sort of, I was in LA for eight years. My last job would be the executive pastry chef at Besso Restaurant, which was mm-hmm. owned by Eva Longoria and Todd English sure. at the time. Yeah. On and Hollywood just, Boulevard. Yes. And I had mm-hmm. just had an offer to go to Bouchon as a sous chef. And I had 24 hours to make Beverly a decision. Beverly Hills, Bouchon. Beverly Hills, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had a 24-hour window to make a decision. And I went, oh my gosh, I don't know because I've, I have this title and I have this thing and it would be, it is, ah, Mm -hmm. I ended up not going with it and I stayed. And then for some odd reason, I call it Saturn returns. I decided to have my first, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to have a quarter life crisis now. And I like, you know what? I think I want to get married. (laughs) (laughs) I leave LA after eight years. Everyone's blindsided. They cannot believe I'm leaving Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I moved to Japan for four years, uh, become a private chef there, and then start. And I do a little bit of like pastry stuff there on the side. It was a beautiful experience. Japan. Where in Japan? I was in Okinawa, Japan. Mm-hmm. It was so amazing. Uh, probably it has a spot in my heart forever. It is just the most beautiful. And what was what was the reception like uh, for you there? I mean, I, did did you speak Japanese? Was it in to integrate into the local society? Was that something that just came naturally to you? And were they receptive to you? What, what was that like? We, so we lived off base. So, which was, I thought, better off for us because you're inundated, like you're part of the culture at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm shopping in Japanese stores. I'm driving around eating in places where no one speaks English, which is amazing, right? To a point where you're pointing at a menu. I mm-hmm. took classes for a month. Japanese was it was a it was a tough language, but I was glad to at least know a little bit to ask for something. The reception, I had a really great time. I taught English classes. The kids loved it. I mean, it was great. I never felt out of place. I just felt that it was I was there. You know, we lived 10 minutes from the seawall and every night I'd go and watch, you know, the sunset into the East China Sea. Like it was mm. just amazing. Mm. I made friends with this beautiful family who owned this bakery and he just went by chef <laughs> she's like call him chef i'm Taka. these are my children but they would make these beautiful pastries and he had been trained in tokyo by a french chef and he came mm. down and opened a bakery there i mean some of the best pizza i've had and i've had pizza in italy was in japan which is crazy wow. that's crazy think. yeah and i mean i had no i had a really it was 
I don't know if I'll ever live that way again in time in that place. And so mm-hmm. those four years, I never took one day for granted because mm-hmm. they were so extraordinary. And leaving mm-hmm. was very heartbreaking. Even when we would come home for the summer, I would have culture shock coming back to America because everything was just so big, so loud. <laughs> a lot was going mm-hmm. on. But I would look at a map and think, oh my gosh, we live all the way over there on this <sighs> tiny little island and it takes so long to get there, you know, mm-hmm. but it's just filled with so much beauty. My stepmother is Japanese. And mm-hmm. so I have a brother who's half Japanese. And so it was always part of our family. So the food, the culture was never, it wasn't new. It was just mm-hmm. new to actually go and travel and visit Japan. That was something that I had not done before. And brave. You yes. Know? I mean, I, I think that says a lot to uh, your fearlessness um, and 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 understand how you also had the confidence then to, to go into business on your own. Oh, yeah. Before that we, beat before, first mentality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have to have that. Yeah. Um, before we leave the, the Campanile uh, legacy behind, I, I want to kind of come back to that because it's not insignificant, right? I mean, Campanile was like the temple in oh, yeah. Los Angeles. I mean, Nancy, Mark, um, my old business partner, Govan Armstrong, Suzanne Gowen. I mean, you had some very prominent names that uh, that worked their way through that uh, the Nancy Silverton school. Did you did you realize at the time, Lokalani, that that was royalty, that this was, in fact, the temple and someone like Neil Frazier, of course, you know, the, you're talking about some of the, you know, that's the hierarchy of the L.A. food world. Were you were you aware of that at the time? Well, it's funny. I was I received a book <clears throat> from. My uncle. uh and his, my aunt and uncle, many, 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 many Christmases ago, it was a book called The Making or Becoming a Chef. And they knew I liked to cook. So they gave me this book and it had stories of different chefs in it. Quotes, you could write, you know, I went to this restaurant, it was sort of like a journal recipe book. Like it was, it's very cool. I give it out. I hand it out to anyone whose child or friends, like, I want to be a chef. I'm like, this book was the best. And I remember reading quotes and Mark Peel and Nancy Silverton had quotes in there. So we already, I knew who these people were, right? Mm-hmm. And the next thing I know, I'm at Campanile in the pastry department. And it's like, no, you know what you're, I mean, you're like, we know what's going on here. <laughs> so I was very aware. I, mean, I, I used to work are. alongside. Yeah, I was like, I'm, I'm aware of these things. Um, but you're, you know, these are giants at the time. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that level of chef and what that was happening. I mean, that was a huge, that was the LA scene. That was the scene. And so I was part of that in the background where, you know, in that pastry department learning, learning so much. I mean, I told them that is my foundation was Campanile and Grace. And the reason I do, and of course, Claudia Fleming's book, The Last Course. I mean, the reason why I have the things or do the things I do now is because of that. They set that foundation for me. Uh, the rustic approach, the simplicity, like those are very specific. Those nuances are very Californian, you know, very Southern Californian. And so, uh, no, I remember working alongside Mark Peel back in the day on Mondays. He, I think it was Monday or Tuesday. He would do his fried chicken and I would be plating it at the end. So I've had, you know, it was quite the experience. I mean, Govan, I remember when he had table eight, like I mm. remember these days and I just never went to work for Suzanne, uh, but I know friends that worked for her. So it's sort of like you either you came from Michael's and then you would see yeah. 
how everyone else branched out. But you know, I'll I always- tell you a funny quick story about Suzanne. So I had a restaurant called Georgia in LA in the, in the 90s and Southern restaurant, and I wanted to do another place. And Fred Eric, who was a pretty well-known chef in LA, said, oh, I got someone who you really should go into business with. She's a pastry chef at Campanile and she's looking to do something. And I said, okay, let me meet her. And, and it was Suzanne. So I had found a space that I thought was really great. So we did a tasting with um, a very prominent uh, entertainment executive and his attorney who was a foodie. And the, the entertainment attorney was not impressed. And we ended up not doing the deal. And it was Suzanne. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whenever I see him these days, I'm like, man, you know how much money you cost me? <laughs> oh, man. Hard to imagine that, right? He was wow. not impressed. Oh, know? wow. So, that's a good one. That's, that's a, a good story. That's, that's a good story. That's so, wild. All right. So Northern California, you're a California girl, mm-hmm. Denmark, Japan, L.A. How does Lokalani Alabanza end up? in Nashville, Tennessee. Nothing against Nashville, Tennessee, which is a very cool city, but how did that happen? So I was once married and he was from Portland, Tennessee, which is six miles from the Kentucky border, which is about 20, like 35 miles north of uh, Nashville. So we went from Japan to Las Vegas because I lived in Las Vegas for two years. And then it was the, I want to go home. And I thought, why do you want to go home? And I have family that lives in East Tennessee, and I've been in Nashville a handful of times. And I thought, why would we live in Tennessee? Why? I don't understand. <laughs> and so we find our way here. I find a job here at the Hutton Hotel. They were looking for an executive pastry chef, and I got the job without even meeting anyone. We did it all on the phone and like email, which is wild. And so we moved. I moved from Las Vegas to here. And that was my job. And that's how I ended up six years ago, which is insane when I think about it, that I've lived in Nashville for six years. And when I got here, it didn't even look like the Nashville that it looks like now. This Nashville Mm -hmm. is an entirely different Nashville. Uh, People from all over the country are moving here. It's Mm -hmm. wild, wild, wild. Yeah, I was there. My wife and I were there about four years ago, I think. And I was actually, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was shocked by the scene. Very cool restaurant scene. You know, a lot of building going on. Obviously, music is a big deal there, but felt very cosmopolitan, but in in a smaller, more contained, more localized, you know, kind of way. And I, and I really dug it. My son is a musician and he absolutely loves Nashville. Oh yeah. It's uh it's funny because those planes, the the plane from LA to Nashville nonstop is packed. It's <laughs> packed with people. Musicians act like everybody's coming here. Uh no, it's grown. I mean, they're building. I mean, the things that they're opening up, it's just unreal. And also I live you know, I don't live downtown. I live on the east side. And so we're constantly like, no, it's fine. Everyone stay over on the other <laughs> side. Um, but yeah, it's a, everyone should come visit. But most people that come visit, they want to stay. Everyone that I know that comes. Because I had a lot of visitors in Las Vegas. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. I had people, in, we had people in the house every single <laughs> month for two years, every month. This, I've had people come and they're like, I think I want to move here. We're looking for houses. And I'm like, wow. what? I, this is wild. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Nashville is the, it's, it's the spot right now. I think so. I think you're on to something there. So you go to work at, at Hattie's, Hattie Jane's Creamery, correct? 
And um, I, I read up on them. I mean, it, you know, the flavors of the ice cream, the description of how they do it. And it just, you know, they, they talk about it as kind of a, a happy place. And how can you be unhappy around ice cream? So but just what was that experience like? And then take us right into, OK, it was time that COVID kicked in. You know, they, they made some layoffs and you moved on to saturated. But what was the experience like there? Uh, and what yeah, did you it, gain? So. It was a it was a wild experience. You know, I I came in as a chef at one of their pastry chef as one of their other uh, companies, and I was not there for one week until they said, "Hey, we're opening this creamery in two and a half weeks." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, <laughs> challenge accepted again." And so I went in, and there were no recipes, there were no flavors, so it was really I had to dig deep to you know I was nervous because I had not had that experience before. I know what it's like to be a pastry chef and compose dishes and write a menu. Like I could do that in my sleep, but not, Hey, make 12 flavors. They have to be consistent. You're using these machines that are commercial. So it was the education of my culinary career Mm -hmm. fully. And it Mm -hmm. has taught me my strengths, my weaknesses. It has taught me how to always trust myself. (laughs) It's taught me, um, what nostalgia really means for me, which is the foundation of who I am and also what my business is. And it's also taught me what a beautiful vessel ice cream is. And it holds a lot of memory, history. It has so much in it. And so it was a, it was four years. It was four years, two creameries going back and forth, you know. Um, but it was amazing to work with local farmers, local dairies. You know, mm-hmm. at one point it was there's this goat farm, and I got to go and get goat's milk from them and create an ice cream for them, and then they had it and they loved it. You know, it's all these little things that worked mm-hmm. out. But it was time. It was just time to go. Uh, it's a lot of work. Ice cream takes a lot of labor, uh, and which we all know that's the restaurant. You don't get hung up on it takes so much time. It's always like it took this many days and people ate it in this many minutes, you know, this is just part of the cycle. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So from there, you know, COVID hit, uh, my last day of work was on St. Patty's day and I mm. knew it. I knew in my gut, I said, I'm not coming back. I knew it. And then the next day I was laid off and that was the beginning of, you know, so when today. you, you talked about, um, you know, the, the task that you realized that you were that you were taking on and, and there were strengths and weaknesses to, you know, to your game, let's just say. So when you looked at the areas in which you weren't strongest, what what did you do to you know strengthen that part of your skill set? I Are had you a to... numbers person? Was it a little avoidance of that or what, what, what was it that uh, you would tend to not be that strong and that you then said, I'm, I got to step up in this area? Yeah, I'm not a numbers person. I'm fully like I had to accept that I'm a creative person, that I'm a creator. Like I had to accept that. It was like mm-hmm. you are a creator and you need to be okay with that and also know even now like logistics, I don't love logistics, but I have to do mm-hmm. them because I'm the only person running the company. So mm-hmm. when I can get a director of operations, my whole life is going to change. It's going to be amazing. You know, I used to fight <laughs> with my dad. I was not good at math as a kid. He will he, could, he is the witness to this. And I said, I'm never going to need math. And he's like, oh, okay. And then I became a pastry chef. And now I'm like, oh, metric system, got it down. This is great. So <laughs> I was like, oh, how the mighty have fallen. But it's one of those things where 
I had to challenge myself to get better at things. I mean, there was even parts mm-hmm. of the ice cream where I was nervous about taking something that I knew was about, I could make two quarts with it. And then I had to fill up a 20 gallon tank. So you have to figure those things out, right? right so sure. I would go, I'd ask questions. I mean, I say a lot, ice cream sort of a, a secret club. You have to mm-hmm. like work really hard to get into the club and find out the people that'll let you in because you have to ask the right questions. You have to figure out the right containers. You have to figure out the right scoops. You have to figure out just how to do things correctly. And so I had a friend at the time that we worked really well together because she was good with logistics and I was good with the creativity. So I was mostly the culinary director, creative person. But when it came to running my own business, I had gone to so many P&L meetings, so many manager meetings. You know, It's also about leadership. Some people mm-hmm. are born natural born leaders. Some are not. Some people have to learn how to delegate. I had to learn mm-hmm. how to do that because I always mm-hmm. wanted to be the one that just did all the work. You know, mm-hmm. I am the person that wants to make sure everyone's fair and we're all doing it together. But then I won't tell someone that I need help. So I had to learn how to do that. And that probably within the last year and a half has been my biggest thing is to ask for help. I've It was always a struggle. And so just asking for help has made the world of difference because people want to help. You know, the one mm-hmm. thing I think we forget is people's time, you know, is very important and it's mm-hmm. a big deal when someone wants to help you with something. And I never try to take that for granted. Um, but no, the creamery allowed me to be the most creative I've been probably ever where it pushed me to do things that I wouldn't have done before. I mean, I made a hot chicken flavor, you know, an Ode to Prince's hot chicken. You know, I made these wild things during that time, but it mm-hmm. allowed me to like push that envelope. And so I didn't have a better place to do that. So that was an incredible platform, which allowed me to say, hey, I know I should probably make this plant-based CBD ice cream. I don't know what's going to happen, but we're just going to go out there and do it. It's just so funny that that's what comes to you. you know? Yeah, right. You know, I've got to make CBD plant-based ice cream. But before we move, you know, I got to shout out to uh, to Kim Prince uh, of the Prince family that you just alluded to. Um, Kim is uh, partners with uh, my, my dear friend, Greg Doolin in Los Angeles. <clears throat> and they opened up Hotville uh, right across yeah. from our restaurant, Post and Beam. Um, and they are they're doing some great stuff. And Greg's uh, redoing his his Doolin's restaurant on Crenshaw. But she is going to be thrilled to know that there is a hot chicken ice cream. That the the idea of that in and of itself sounds like you should be on sixty minutes discussing yeah. that with uh, with someone smart. Um, but that's really cool. That's really cool, Lokalani. So um, so saturated comes about. What where did the name come from? So I have a dear friend. I call her sister. Uh, Sister Brooke, she's the mastermind behind, uh, she's their culinary director at Smitten Ice Cream, which is in the Bay Area. She's incredible. We joke, if we came together and made ice cream, it'd be over (laughs) for everyone (laughs) if we came together. Um, But she, we had dumplings in San Francisco. It was uh, December. I was coming home for Christmas. And I said, look, I think I'm going to name it California Skies because I met this woman who had named her daughter California Skies. And I was like, it's just going to be good with the CBD brand. And she went, no, you should call it saturated because the industry saturated. And I went, oh, that's brilliant. Okay, well, then it's saturated. And so that's sort of, that's exactly where it was birthed. 
over dumplings in San Francisco. Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> Did you make a deal on the back of a napkin for her <laughs> rights? To- <laughs> it was cute because her mom had, we listened to a podcast. I think it was Milkster. I don't even know. I was on a podcast last year and she said, I didn't know Loki, you named the company. Mm. And I was like, yes, <laughs> she did it. So That's so cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this article that you wrote in Oxford American. But before I do, I, I wanted to touch on quickly, what what's the legality, uh, Lokalani, around shipping uh, CBD or, you know, products like that? Because state to state laws are different, obviously. You know, the, the federal mandate is what it is for those kinds of products. So how do you how do you deal with that? If I wanted your ice cream here in in Miami, how could, would I be able to do that? Would I be able yeah, to no, yeah, it can be shipped. There's only four states mm-hmm. uh, that it can't be shipped to, and mm-hmm. but the majority of the fifty it can. So it does. It can go to Florida. It can go to L.A. It can go to Tennessee. So those are legal. All right, uh, all right. Yeah, no, it's the THC ice cream that people mm-hmm. make that cannot come to Tennessee because it is not legal in the state of Tennessee. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so, so that's in, right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that was another reason for CBD for because t- I live here. It was like, mm-hmm. well, what's legal for my city, for my state, which mm-hmm. is, you know, again, CBD, three things, broad spectrum, you know, full spectrum's not legal in the state of Tennessee, but mm-hmm. broad spectrum and isolate powder are. So those are the two that legally you can, you know, it's not an issue. Fantastic. Also, like, Delta eight is a thing, which is strange, but that's a whole other conversation. Okay. Um, well, that's good to know because we will definitely be ordering some saturated uh, yes. to disperse amongst my friends, but I will be sampling all of it before it goes anywhere. So um, as I mentioned, you wrote this beautiful piece in yeah. Oxford Americans spring issue that was guest edited by, uh, by Alice Randall, our friend um, who's since become a friend of mine. I know uh, you and her daughter are, are friends. And I thought your piece was beautiful. It really struck me, Um, you know, great writing and the information that, uh, you know, that you provided first, the the flavor, um, this idea of toasted fenugreek and chocolate ice cream. I'd never heard of fenugreek, didn't have any idea what that was, but the way that you described it and the ice cream that came as a result of it, I thought was just phenomenal. And um, you dedicated it to... um, Sarah Estelle, who was an African-American woman who owned and operated an ice cream salon and boarding house in downtown Nashville in 1840. I mean, who knew, right? And also to our uh, current vice president, Kamala Harris. So talk to me a little bit about that flavor, about your dedication, about your piece. Yes. Well, I have to always shout out Miss Alice Randall. She is (laughs) just a gem. (laughs) And she, I'm really very grateful for her for this piece. It was funny. The original piece was supposed to be about sweet potato ice cream. And then last minute she said, I want you to write about this thing. And I got a little nervous because I don't, I'm a voracious reader, but I don't think that I'm the strongest writer. So I was a little nervous about it. Um, so it took me a weekend, a long weekend to kind of gather my thoughts. We had a quick conversation. I felt really good about it. She gave me some notes and then I put together, you know, Sarah Stell for me has been just a massive massive point of reference, you know, for this ice cream world and living in Nashville. And it's like, she's this beautiful ghost that wanders with me, you know? So Mm -hmm. to know that we're in the same city, we're doing the same things. I mean, you can't ask for anything better. And a lot of people don't know who she is. 
And so I'm glad to tell that story and to put it out there because it's so important, especially I don't think enough people know how many black hands have been touching ice cream for such a long time and they're not aware of it. And so I'm proud to be a black ice cream maker, you know, and I'm proud to be in the city that she was making ice cream. So it was just to tell the story about her, about myself. So how do I connect the three of us together, you know, in a way? And why can't a recipe become a monument? You know, it's something that people do cherish so deeply. And it's something that you don't think would be that, but it does have a meaning, right? Uh, And people pass theirs on. I think also for myself, my grandmother didn't leave any recipes when she passed. And so Mm. I sort of have been filling that up with, you know, lots of old cookbooks, other people's family recipes. And Mm. then I realized, oh, Loki, you've created these recipes of ice cream. So that's part of my own legacy, you know? So it was exciting. When it came down to finding the flavor, I wanted to make sure that it expressed what Sarah possibly would have made, but also would bring in Kamala's Indian roots without being too obvious, you know? So fenugreek is a really, it's an old, old spice. It's been around for a very long time. And it has a really interesting flavor and smell and taste. And I had never made this flavor before, ever. And I made it actually, I think the day after it came out, the piece, I made it with a coconut base, with the plant base that I make. And I was like, well, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. So it came together so beautifully. I was really proud of it. I was proud that it was something that can showcase not only history, but tell the Mm -hmm. story. And I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of this piece. I was very excited. It was an honor to be, you know, in the Oxford oh, American beautiful. period. Beautiful. So, has, has our vice president uh, had the pleasure of tasting this ice cream dedicated to uh, to her? Yeah. No, we know? but I mean, that can, I mean, well, if only, that would be amazing. <laughs> well, let's, let's whisper it into <laughs> existence right. here on, on Corner Table Talk. This vice president, yes. if you're listening, we, there's an ice cream flavor you should try. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Lokalani, if you wouldn't mind, we don't have time to read. I would love to read the entire piece to to our audience, but we don't have time for that. But would you mind reading a, a little section from the beautiful article that you wrote for Oxford American? Not at all. Both women of color, both groundbreaking, both endearing and outstanding. I am a Black woman, an entrepreneur, an American. My monument to both women is my ice cream. Sarah has become the North Star on my ice cream journey. As an ice cream maker, Vice President Harris reminds me that no matter how arduous the path, there is glory waiting to greet you. Mm, That's fantastic. That really is. So, yeah, I just had, I I wanted to just breathe that in for a second. Thank you very much for that. So, um, if someone were interested in doing a pop up with you, Lokalani, let's say on Martha's Vineyard, if Michelle Obama were to call and wanted something on Circuit Avenue and Oak Bluffs, would you be, are you open to doing pop-ups? Oh, absolutely. I do a collaboration. This is the collaboration season and I receive all of the, you know, amazing collaborations. But we'll also put that out into the universe that Michelle Obama, Lokalani is also open to doing pop-ups and perhaps on Martha's Vineyard, who we're better to do a great ice cream pop-up than uh, in that beautiful place. So Lokalani, before we let you go, and it's really been a pleasure, I can't wait to try your ice cream. Just tell the folks where they can find you. Give us your social info. Yeah, so we have a website. It's uh, saturatedicecream.com. So you can go in and see all the flavors. We have a little bit of history in there. It's very exciting. And you can order from there or you can email us. 
Uh, and you can find us on Instagram at Saturated Ice Cream. That does it. Well, Lokalani, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you, and I can't wait to try Saturated. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. This has been wonderful. So here we go with How We Move and the lovely Ambassador Shabazz. What's happening, Ambassador? Well, geez, was that wonderful or what? I mean, for me, it just touches so many different aspects of... It definitely is how one moves, right? She's the epitome of that to be 40, as she acknowledged, and to have journeyed so many places, you know, and she's journeyed from her birth city in the Bay Area to Los Angeles, to the Northeast, to Nashville, where she is now. But there were places in between there that she went to and continued collecting. I mean, that was in her article in Oxford, America, as well as what she shared this time. And while people are pausing and trying to determine if it's a good time to travel, I'm going to say people need to apply for their passports. Just get ready. Be ready and have a good backpack and a, and a suitcase. So when it's time to venture, journey, travel, you're ready. And that's what this young lady did. So when I listened to how Okinawa, who talks about Okinawa? I was referencing Okinawa to someone the other day just because of the people. The people look like the island cross-section of visitors. So it doesn't, it's not specifically a Japanese face. It's not specifically a Fijian face. And yet there's so much that goes, so I would imagine, food, texture, history, narrative, stories. And this young lady, when you, when you talk about um, uh, nostalgia finding its way on the palate or food being a monument to a story or one's existence. Just exciting for me to listen to her um, at this stage. And you know that this isn't the end of it. And even I'm, you know, learning more about Nashville. My day, Nashville had one picture. Now Nashville is becoming yet this other, you know, beckoning space or place. It's the the second largest population or demographic in Nashville are Africans around the globe, American Blacks, international Blacks, Caribbean Blacks, finding their way there within the art, music, um, culinary, uh, B&B spots, you know. There's a young couple, out of, uh, they started in, in New York, in Brooklyn, with something called Urban Cowboy. Have you heard about it? It's like a no. B&B, mm -hmm. little spot, little eclectic spot. And someone told them, based on the cross-sections of what the new Brooklyn has become and how it hosts its um, patrons, that they needed to go to um, Nashville. So there they are, Urban Cowboy. It's a B&B. &B. Um, they bought an old Victorian. And I'm just digging, listening to people daring to do it differently. Yeah. You know, what also uh, got me about um, Lokalani's story is, as you mentioned, uh, she spent a lot of time traveling abroad and, and, and saw you know various parts of the world from Denmark to Japan and certainly growing up in the, in the Bay Area, the Northeast, attending school at the Culinary Institute, living in L.A., working at the temple that is that, that was Campanile, <laughs> but under Nancy Silverton. And then just circuitously ending up in Nashville and deciding to go into the ice cream business only to find out about Sarah Estelle, who in 1840 
had operated a creamery, a scoop shop, they called it then, and a boarding house as an African-American woman. And she did not know that prior to going into the ice cream business. And to have gone around the world to end up there to find out that story, it just kind of ties you back to some of the some of the stories that we have as African-Americans here in this country that we don't know a lot about. And the South seems to be rich with those. Well, I would imagine that no matter where you go, there's a story in every building, right? There, there's a spirit there. We are working on a project here in in, um, in Kentucky, and the uh, construction uh, site right next to us found when they removed the old wall, savings bonds and mail. Hmm. Right there in a black neighborhood that used to be called Little Africa, you know, where um, a lot of contributors during the 20s, 30s, and 40s were... And I think that what we will find if we're not just moving too fast, but when we pause and commiserate and share like this young lady collecting stories and translating them um, is that there's probably a story no matter where you go, everywhere you go. We can't presume we're starting with the story, just like Mm -hmm. our kids think that they know what they know today. And you want to say, sit down a little bit. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. my godfather, if I haven't repeated it, uh, um, you know, too many times, um, who was Alex Haley, known for Root, he said every time an elder passes, every time a grandparent passes, it's as if a library burns down. So we have to just imagine whether it's the old barber, whether it's the old you know, bartender, whether it's the lady at the diner. Take a pause, ask a question, and don't move so fast. Well, there, there's, there's education in the excavation. Right. That's right. You know, I both, love that. yeah. And, and as you know, we start to find these places as, as you just described what they uncovered from digging up the land and, yeah. um, you know, what we uncover as we find out about some of these stories like Estelle, uh, Sarah Estelle, there's an education there and there's also a healing opportunity, right? Yeah. Once you, once you know what happened before you, you can kind of better understand your, your place. And that there must be an assigned beckoning, right? Something that is for you to be bequeathed with. I think so often for the last couple of generations, we don't realize that we have a trust fund bequeathed us. It's not always determined by cash. You know, it just might be a laying on of hands. It might just be acquiring that building or hearing the narrative or getting that thumbs up. We have to know the currency and that which is bequeathed us. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I, I may have mentioned this before. I know I've mentioned it to you, but in the uh, autobiography of your dad that you wrote the forward for, I'm reading that now interspersed in between my workouts every morning. So I'll do a little set and then I'll read, you know, a, a half a page and do another set, and read another half a page. And there's just so much to be gained from every kernel of that story. And I, I just, uh, I don't know, I felt a connection to it this morning as I was listening to uh, Lokalani talk about Sarah Estelle and, um, you know, just the importance of us really spending some time and, and understanding our, our own history and our journey, I think, uh, is, is just, you know, never loses its importance. Oh, exactly right. Exactly right. And she's one who... 40 years in, from now, we'll still have those stories passed on. So that's also the joy, that it doesn't end. It's It it may seem quieted, but as soon as we pause and take the time and share and exchange and 
and move around the globe, uh, no matter what that vehicle is, to um, break bread with people, no matter where they are. You'll learn stories that may not seem to be yours until you realize, you know, in that last morsel <laughs> <laughs> that we have something in common. You yeah. know, even if it's the way you exhale after that, yeah. you know, that final bite. And, you know, it's well, uh, among the things that you and I have in common is a love of sweets. So I oh, know no. we are going to be headed to oh, Nashville, no. even though we can mail order that ice cream. I'm down that's for exactly a trip right. and an experience. So that's I, exactly I right. hope you'll roll that's with right. me on that one. All right. I'm there. Yeah. Ambassador Shabazz, thank you so much. Enjoy your uh, your afternoon and uh, we will be speaking with you soon. You too. Love to all of yours. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.